I speak to you in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 There is a game called Guess Who? Maybe you have heard about it, or maybe you have even played it yourself. It was one of my personal favorites growing up. It works like this. You and your opponent select a card with a person on it. From among 25 or so persons, you take turns asking questions of each other to find out which person your opponent has. For example, you may ask your opponent, is your person wearing a hat? If the answer is yes, then you would mark off those persons who are not wearing a hat. Another example, is your person wearing glasses? The answer is no. Then you would mark off all those persons who are wearing glasses. So you and your opponent take turns asking questions. The ultimate winner is the one who figures out his opponent's person first. It is a simple game, but it is very addicting. The strategy, if there is one, because it is such a simple game, is to ask really good questions. In last week's gospel lesson, today's gospel lesson, and next week's gospel lesson, there is a game of guess who going on in Capernaum. Jesus is being asked really good questions, but he is not giving simple answers nor is he giving answers that those around him want to hear. Jesus is still engaged with the same crowd left over from the feeding of the 5,000. Now remember that this is early on in John's Gospel. The feeding of the 5,000 was one of Jesus' early miracles, and it wasn't some backroom miracle that only a handful of people knew about. He fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. So, his fame is spreading quite rapidly. And with fame comes curiosity. With fame comes questions. Who is this guy? What is he up to? Where is he from? It is in our lesson today that we discover that a large portion of that curious crowd are the Jews. Now, the author of John is not referring to all Jews in general, but he is simply grouping together those who are opposed to Jesus. They are asking questions such as, Rabbi, when did you come here? What must we do to perform the works of God? What sign are you giving us? And how can you say, I have come down from heaven? Like the game of guess who, they are asking him questions to figure out who he is and what he is up to. And with each of Jesus' answers, those who are asking the questions become more and more and more befuddled. They are befuddled not because he calls himself bread necessarily, although that is weird, but because he tells them that he came down from heaven. This blows them away. Their minds are now spinning. There are those in the crowd who do seem to know Jesus or at least they think they do. They know his family origin, his heritage, perhaps the home in which he grew up in. They may have stories of cute things he did as a little boy. They may be close friends to Mary and Joseph. 
Perhaps their own children were friends with Jesus growing up. Now, here he is saying that he came not from Joseph and Mary, but that he came down from heaven. This is absurd to the point of blasphemy in the minds of those within earshot of Jesus' proclamation. Those he is speaking to are well-schooled in the laws of Moses. They know it like the back of their hand, and they think they have a pretty good grasp of what is required to be a faithful Jew. So what Jesus says here about coming down from heaven, this is completely counter to their beliefs. It is against what they were taught. It, was, it is against what they have learned. Jesus is shattering what they thought was true. What they thought was true, Jesus tells them, is no longer so. And they do not take lightly the fact that Jesus is throwing a wrench into their deeply rooted beliefs. How can he say that he came down from heaven? We know his mother and father. Because they are so focused on Jesus' earthly origins, they fail to see his divine origins. They fail to see that the answers Jesus is giving them are the very answers that they seek. I am the bread of life, says Jesus. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. It's pretty simple, isn't it? This is who Jesus is. Thirst, hunger, and bread are all common terms. These are terms that any human understands. We know what it is to thirst especially in the midst of this hot weather in Mississippi. We know what it feels like to hunger, both physically and spiritually. We know well the smell of bread and the taste of it still warm from the oven. So when Jesus uses these words, thirst, hunger, and bread, our senses allow us to relate to a certain point, what Jesus is trying to tell us, what Jesus is trying to tell that crowd. He is telling all of us to rely on Him because He came from heaven. This we understand because we have the benefit of knowing the story. We have the benefit of knowing who Jesus is, unlike that crowd. We know that He is the Word made flesh that came down from heaven sent by the Father. That He is very God from very God begotten, not made, of one being with the Father through whom all things were made. We know the story. And because we do, we know that those who are grumbling among themselves because of Jesus' words got it wrong. They couldn't see Jesus for who He really was, for who He really is, God. There is no need for us to play a game of guess who with Jesus because we know Jesus. And Jesus knows us, right? We affirm every Sunday who Jesus is and what he means to us. This we have done since the Council of Nicaea in 325, from which we received the Nicene Creed. We also have the Gospels and the Epistles, which expound upon the Gospels. We have the great saints like Paul and Peter and the early church fathers like St. Augustine. We have all these resources and things that have molded and shaped our deeply held beliefs. We know Jesus. We know that He is God. We are unlike that crowd. We have the benefit 
of the story. We have the benefit of hindsight, and we know that Jesus came from heaven. We know that Jesus is God, the living bread. But, however, we are very much like that crowd. When our deeply held beliefs are challenged, we tend to respond like that crowd engaging with Jesus. When what we have all been taught is questioned, we grumble and we complain, we get angry, and we tend to become less and less like the one in who we root our deeply held beliefs. Let me tell you a story. I remember well my first group discussion in my first theology class in seminary. I was flabbergasted to find out that one of my classmates struggled with a belief in the virgin birth. Then there was another classmate who did not believe in a bodily resurrection. I just assumed that you were sent to seminary with an orthodox theology like I was. To find out that there were future priests who were uncomfortable by the words and the theology of the Nicene Creed, that did not sit well with me. My beliefs were being challenged and what I had been taught was being brought into question. I responded like one of those in the crowd, and I grumbled and complained under my breath something along the lines of, why would any bishop send you to seminary? One of the challenges of the Christian life is to live in community with those who disagree with you. It is not easy let me repeat, I know it is not easy. I did it for three years at seminary. When our beliefs are challenged, our first instinct is to defend. It is to speak and not to listen. It is to assert and not discern. It is to stray from and not walk with. The Christian life is not to pass judgment, to condemn or belittle. It is to listen to and agree with or disagree with in love with one another. Our baptismal covenant outlines this very well. Will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? Will you respect the dignity of every human being, not just those who think like you do? And will you continue in the apostles' teaching? and the breaking of the bread. To each of these we vow to ascribe, and we affirm our vow with, I will, with God's help. Even in the midst of centuries of disagreement, the church still stands. As a bishop once told me, if you know anything at all about church history, you know that it is quite amazing that the whole thing didn't fall apart. There has to be something that has held the church together and continues to do so. That is the Holy Spirit. That is God. Theology is simply having faith, but still, but still seeking understanding. And we all rely on Jesus to understand. Though we are many minds with many beliefs, we serve one Lord, and it is this one Lord that loves us all unconditionally. Our common ground in this Episcopal Church of ours 
is the Eucharist. It is what binds us all together in the body of Christ and the communion of saints. Just think about it. No matter who you voted for this past week, no matter what you may think about any theological, political, or social issue, our commonality is that we are all invited to the Eucharist. And we all partake. We walk together up the aisle and we fall on our knees at the altar rail and we stretch out our arms and open our hands for our Lord Jesus Christ. And to each of us reaching out, to each of us struggling within ourselves to believe what is right, to each of us who are questioning what is right, and to each of us who are sure that we know what is right, Jesus gives of himself. And to each of us, he gives freely. This is what it means to be church. This is what it means to be a community. This is what it means to be the chapel of the cross. This is what it means to serve Jesus. And this is what it means to be a Christian. Amen. Amen.